0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 5th of August, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, robo and the Morrisonian Doctrine, more pressure on Peter Dutton, Dangerous times for the Great Barrier Reef and for global warming. The move towards national consent laws. And are we really going to have an early election? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis,
2: C-List reality star and Gold Logie nominee.
1: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Parliament has returned this week and there's so many issues that need to be addressed. There's the Housing Australia Future Fund, which is being reintroduced into the House of Representatives. There's the Pathway on Reconciliation and the Voice to Parliament. There's a push by the Education Union for full funding of public schools. But it was a few leftover issues that were gaining all the attention. The Royal Commission into the RoboDebt Scheme is well and truly over, The report into that was released over a month ago and if the purpose of a Royal Commission is to change the behaviours of the political system or the business community that are in the public interest, well this was one of the better Royal Commissions and it's up there with the Banking Royal Commission which changed the behaviour of the banking industry at least in the short term. But the person who was the most responsible for the RoboDebt Scheme, he was the Minister for Social Services when it was first implemented and then became the Prime Minister for the duration of the scheme, doesn't seem to think that it's got anything to do with him.
3: The recent report of the Holmes Royal Commission highlights the many unintended consequences of the RoboDebt Scheme and the regrettable impact that the operations of the scheme had on individuals and their families. I do, however, completely reject the Commission's adverse findings in the published report regarding my own role as Minister for Social Services between December 2014 and September 2015 as disproportionate, wrong, unsubstantiated and and contradicted by clear evidence presented to the Commission. The latest attacks on my character by the Government in relation to this report is just a further attempt by the Government Following my departure from office to discredit me and my service to our country during one of the most difficult periods our country has faced since the Second World War. This campaign of political lynching has once again included the weaponisation of a quasi legal process to launder the government's political vindictiveness. They need to move on. I say to the government, instead of trying to distract the Kench from their own failings by relentlessly pursuing these transparently partisan campaigns against me, that they get on with the job they promised us to do and are failing to do. For my part, I will continue to defend my service and our government's record with dignity and an appreciation of the strong support I continue to receive from my colleagues, from so many Australians since the election, and especially in my local electorate of Cook, of which I am pleased to continue to serve. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. And I'm sure that
1: any resemblance between Donald Trump and Scott Morrison is purely coincidental, but Morrison has claimed that the Royal Commission's findings on him were disproportionate, incorrect and unsubstantiated, but it was one of the most detailed and definitive Royal Commissions that we've ever had. Here's Bill Shorten's response.
4: The member for Cook has said that the Royal Commission findings on him are just wrong and he, uh, with his trademark blame shifting, just says this is a political Uh, lynching of himself and he just would like Labor to move on. The real victims were those who took their own lives. The real victims are the mothers of those who took their own lives. The real victims are all those Australians who lost trust in government because of an unlawful scheme run for four and a half years. I've gone to who the real victims are. But One person who is not a real victim is the member for Cook. Yesterday, the member for Cook claimed that the adverse findings against him were disproportionate. Wrong unsubstantiated or contradicted. The purpose of that Order. statement was to frame himself as the, the real victim Fremantle. of the Debt Royal Commission. The Member for Cook said, and I quote, that in making their finding, the Commission sought to reverse the onus of proof to establish oh their God. claim. Oh Satire is truly dead in this country when the Member for Cook complains about the reversal of onus of proof on him, but not the 434,000 people who did have their reverse onus. And the member for Cook then said the Royal Commission was a quasi-legal process, a new Morrisonian doctrine about the law. The Royal Commission was not quasi-legal, it's real, it was constituted by the law. 46 days of public hearings, over 100 witnesses under oath. And I can see the member for Cook lip-syncing something. Well, let us be very clear. The victims of robodebt never had their legal costs paid for, never had the chance to see the evidence put against them. The member for Cook is a bottomless well of self-pity and not a drop of mercy for all of the real victims of robo-debt. I've not
1: heard of the Morrisonian doctrine before. Not sure if it's up there with the Truman doctrine from the post-war era. But we have to remember that Scott Morrison is a pathological liar, will say anything at all to redeem himself. But I don't think there's much to dispute about his role in the
2: robo-debt scheme. The Royal Commission was completely methodical. And it was heartbreaking. The other Royal Commission that in modern times, which is worth uh, pointing out, is of course the one into child abuse in institutions, which was another Royal Commission that affected hopefully a permanent change for the better. The banking one was, again, an an excellent one. and, And this one, I think we haven't even started feeling the waves of reform that this one will bring through. But for Scott Morrison to sort of claim that he had nothing to do with it, that the Royal Commissioner didn't really understand how government worked and that he was not responsible, whereas part of the job title is Minister Responsible For, or part of the job description, was just extraordinary a few people on social media pointed out that he set it under parliamentary privilege where you can get away with not many consequences. I think possibly that if he'd set it outside of parliament, a class action could be set up by the people whose lives were adversely affected and the surviving relatives of those who found it all too much. I think a class action hitting him very hard, not just the department, but him. He was approved to have his legal fees paid for by the Commonwealth. I'm in two minds about that. I think ultimately, probably, if it had set a precedent where he didn't get it, someone down the track who might be innocent and who might need it might not have got it. So I guess you just have to wear it. Having said that, it'd be nice to see him pay for something for once. I think, too, there is a massive difference between Morrison and Trump, in that Trump is a corrupt, inept right wing demagogue who tried to change the country so that he would be a permanent leader, whereas Morrison is inept and corrupt right wing demagogue who tried to change that word order is very important. well, the Royal Commission into the Robodebt scheme, it was
1: very thorough, it was very proportionate and it was all very correct and. Many of us watched the live proceedings of that royal commission. The mainstream media didn't really want to know too much about it, but it was highlighted and covered substantially in the independent media and from what we saw of those live proceedings it was a very thorough investigation and every witness who presented themselves to that royal commission was given every opportunity to provide information in the best way that they wanted to and that includes Scott Morrison. So For me, it's hard to know exactly what Scott Morrison is trying to do here, and he spoke in Parliament to make that statement. Nobody asked him to speak, nobody prompted him, and the statements of this nature are known as a statement of indulgence, which I thought was totally appropriate. Now, he might be trying to prep himself up to defend himself when it comes to appearing at the National Anti-Corruption Commission, and you'd have to think that he'd be one of those names in that sealed section of the royal commission report and if you're not naming the minister who was responsible for setting up the robo debt scheme well who are you going to have then and he might be getting a bit of practice for when he does front up to the anti-corruption commission and he'll be able to implement some more of that Morrisonian doctrine that Bill Shorten was talking about.
2: It's almost certain that he was named. The others who we suspected might be named, Alan Tudge, Christian Porter I think, both have stated that they'd received notification that they weren't named in the sealed section and so wouldn't be given charges, at least at this stage. I don't think it's over for either of them myself, but presumably the sealed section also details why it is that they have escaped charges thus far. It could be that there's something else coming. It could be that there just wasn't enough evidence. It could be all kinds of reasons. They may have... Given information that helped the Royal Commission get Morrison or someone else significant. We don't know, and we won't know till they unseal that section. He must be very worried. Apparently, he laughed all the way through Shorten's accusations, which is not a good look, even if you find them funny. People died, people attempted suicide, people found themselves in deep distress. I'm not quite sure what the correct response would be, but I know a wrong response was laughing and smirking and, and then giving such a, a mayor culpa, which really led down to it wasn't me, and if it was me, it was everybody else too, and you don't know how government works, so shut up. I don't know who's advising him, and I'm not sure that anybody is advising him, but it's pretty much, I think, finished him in any form of career or job. No one wants to hire him, at least not at the price that he's prepared to work at. We've discussed this before. It's a sad stain on Australian political history. And for those of you who say he's not the worst prime minister, how many of you people can name me five other prime ministers from before 1972 and then tell me who was worse? That's a very good question. But yeah, it was doing the rounds on
1: social media as well about who is the worst prime minister. And I think we've got the answer to that. We've actually had the answer to that for some time. And I think the fallout from this Royal Commission will continue for some time. And before you mentioned the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in religious institutions, and it's a little bit like the bottom of the harbour Royal Commission from Frank Costigan in the early 1980s. And I think the Issues from this one will also linger for a long, long time. And it is essential that the public service and the processes of government go through changes to make sure that this type of event never happens again. And in the lead-up to the last federal election, Anthony Albanese did promise a return to that traditional public service model which provides frank and fearless advice. And, of course, it's easy to say this when you're in opposition, but it's hard to see why a government wouldn't want frank and fearless advice it is up to the prime minister of the day and their ministers to introduce and implement policy but before you make your final decision well you just want to explore what all the options are and the pros and cons of those decisions and it's a little bit like legal advice you don't have to accept it but at least you are given a range of legal options and if you haven't got all of those options in front of you or if you decide that you don't want to see all of the other options Well, that's how a government ends up with bad policy and bad outcomes. And I think also with the creation of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, bad politicians with bad policies and bad outcomes won't be able to
2: blame the public service anymore. Exactly. And of course, being in government is different to being in opposition. And developing party policy is different to developing public policy. It's not to say that they can't have overlap, but it's easy to say this should be right, this should be right. Then you get into government and there are issues that you either weren't aware of or that didn't exist when you were writing the policy or that. And you need to deal with that. It's quite disappointing to a lot of people who voted for the Labour government to find that they're not able or not willing to change. A lot of this is justified, but there's always going to be the difference. I hope that they are able to restructure the public service in such a way that it does actually serve the public. The other thing to remember, too, is once you're in government, you're helping everybody, those that voted for you, those that didn't vote for you, those that want to see you thrive, those that want to see you wither and die. You have to support everybody, which the last government didn't understand. Um, I hope this government understands it a, a bit better.
1: So we've talked about all the pressure that's on Scott Morrison. He's a former leader, but there's also another leader who's under pressure, and that's the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton. And there have been more calls for a Royal Commission into immigration detention, and we talked a little bit about this last week. And this follows on from the revelations that the Home Affairs Department entered into a major contract with a businessman who was being investigated for corruption and bribery. And it also follows on from comments made by Peter
5: Dutton during the week. As Minister, I had no involvement whatsoever uh, in relation to uh, the contract negotiations, the execution of the agreements, and that's true for all of the predecessors back to 2012. But what I do know is that the procurement arrangements that operated when I was Minister are the same as operated when Brendan O'Connor was Minister, when Tony Burke was Minister. Uh, And if that's the case, then refer the whole period. Um, and I have nothing to hide in relation to the matter. Regardless, so, regardless, can I, can I c- clarify that you have no memory of receiving that briefing? And are you concerned that the Department still went ahead with giving contracts to Mizamal Bojjani's uh, companies, even despite knowing he was being investigated for alleged? Well, put, put the questions to, to the Department uh, in relation to, uh, to their conduct. But um, the advice that I've got uh, is that there's no record in my office of having received a briefing in relation to the matter. Uh, the AFP says uh, in their question on, or their answer to the question on notice that they don't have any detail of what was provided to me uh, and that's um, that's the facts as I know. Do you just have a memory of it? Do you have uh, no, memory? no at all. No.
1: You said you'd be having to co-sign uh, yes. a referral to the NAP, but what about just making one yourself and if you are having to co-sign what in these
2: allegations these sort
1: of Well, about if, if the business.
5: Minister's suggesting that there is some sort of corrupt practice or conduct or action that's been taken, then that, it's right that that's referred to the NAC, and I'd be happy to refer it, but uh, if... if so. to, to anybody? Uh, I, I have no, no issue uh, whatsoever. I, I just wasn't involved in procurement or decisions around contracts, so, and, and that, that is the procurement arrangements of the
1: Commonwealth. And in that exchange, Dutton claims that he had no knowledge of a meeting that he had with the Australian Federal Police. There's no record of the meeting in his office. Now, the Federal Police is adamant that the meeting did take place, but Dutton just simply says that he's got no recollection of it. Now, I don't think you need to hold a Royal Commission to find out whether these meetings took place or not, and the Federal Government has implemented an independent inquiry into the contracts with the Nauru government, but the government can't ignore the calls for a Royal Commission into the immigration detention scheme for too much longer. Now, it is said that governments should know the answers they're looking for before they announce a Royal Commission, but it could also be a case where not enough people in the electorate care too much about having a fair and transparent immigration detention system. And it might also highlight a potential negative for the Labor government and a chance for the coalition to get political mileage by ramping up asylum seeker rhetoric yet again. So I think for all of these reasons, it might take a little while before we see a Royal Commission into the immigration detention system. We should see one soon, but I've just got a feeling that it will take a little while before it does
2: happen. There's political capital, sadly, in the mistreatment of refugees labor has a possibly slightly better record uh, in some cases much better in other cases not very much at all than the coalition the coalition has since john howard has been much more willing to kick into refugees there's also the broader picture of what is our obligation to the 1948 refugee convention does that still hold 75 years down the track I would argue it does because there's been nothing compelling to stop it not holding. You've got to, I've got to be a bit careful saying this because it's a complex and nuanced position that I don't wish to misrepresent. But the notion that immigration is being fed mostly through property developers, and that has impacts on how many refugees we can take and et cetera, et cetera That's a discussion for another day. But We seem to be losing the nuance and the subtlety in the argument. And we also seem to be be losing the moral imperative in it. Now, Dutton never had any moral imperative in it except to win votes. And I also suspect to give his donors a profitable business that they wouldn't have to do too much for. The other thing, too, I think, is that if you're a public servant, or a party official worth your salt, you keep a record of every discussion you have. And we've seen in the Royal Commissions where senior public servants have come in with their notes from discussions and detailed notes written on reflection after with what was said at particular meetings and who said them and, and why it was said and the, the conclusions of these discussions. Now, not all of these are going to be 100% right. There's memory lapses, you're forgetting stuff, You know, people skip words, etc. So generally, we've found that these broadly agree with each other particularly when there were different discussions with different people around the same topic. The same people kept saying broadly the same thing and it builds up a story of how decisions were made. That he doesn't have a record of this meeting and I'm betting the AFP probably do, is not going to end well for him because he can't deny a meeting didn't happen when the evidence is that it probably did happen. Well, it just goes to show
1: what happens when you keep post-it notes instead of detailed minutes. Yeah, whiteboards. <laughs> but There have been some noises about setting up a Royal Commission over the past week, and the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he hasn't actually mentioned anything about that, but he started off by saying that for Peter Dutton there needs to be an explanation of how taxpayer money was spent. This is taxpayers' money,
2: and therefore Mr Dutton has a responsibility to explain uh, what occurred on his watch as Home Affairs Minister with this scandal.
1: Senator Nick McKim from the Australian Greens, he pushed the idea of a royal commission.
5: These are highly credible and extremely serious allegations of systemic corruption. What we need is a royal commission. And it's also
1: been pushed further by the independent member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel.
0: I and others on the crossbench have called for a royal commission into offshore processing. Now we learn that the Department of Home Affairs continued toward contracts involving millions in taxpayers' money, despite being warned by the AFP that the businessman involved was under investigation for bribery. He was subsequently charged and convicted. Will the Prime Minister refer this matter to the NAC and or institute a Royal Commission or some other form of broader independent inquiry into offshore processing?
1: So... There's a way to go on all of this. A government doesn't call a Royal Commission unless it can see a political benefit to it, and if there is a public benefit to it as well. But this is probably a slow burn issue. And it will only be forced if there's more pressure placed on the government by independent MPs, which we saw a little bit of during the week, or if there's pressure that comes in from the Senate to do a bit of horse trading on key government legislation. But the public interest test, well, that's already been passed. On this issue. There's billions and billions of dollars that have been spent on offshore immigration detention. It's all unaccountable. No one knows where the money has gone or what it's been spent on. So we definitely need to know what went on there. And I don't even think that a Royal Commission, if it does get to that, I don't even think that it needs to focus on. Peter Dutton. He's already got a lot of other problems. And there was also another revelation during the week that he was briefed five times about war crime allegations in Afghanistan while he was defence minister and kept quiet about it so it wouldn't jeopardise US military assistance to Australian troops. So if a Royal Commission is to be instigated, and I'm still not quite sure if that will happen, it just has to be instigated because it's the right thing to do, not to do a hatchet job on Peter Dutton, he's already doing all of the unravelling himself and I don't think he needs any help from anybody else to do this
2: What's the, the phrase? Innocent people don't need mercy I suspect that the war crimes allegations in Afghanistan will quietly go away With the Labour government compromising itself in terms of national sovereignty with the US at the moment. But of course, it wouldn't have been pleasant for Peter Dutton to have that dredged up again. And it just adds more fuel to the fire about other issues that he may or may not be allegedly and all of that involved in. It doesn't suggests that he has a long career in front of him in politics and probably not as leader of the opposition. But again, sometimes politicians survive massive scandal. Most times they don't.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support new politics through Substack and Patreon.
1: There has been some good news for the environment and there is that emphasis on some good news and that's the announcement that UNESCO has deferred its decision whether to list the Great Barrier Reef on the in-danger list for another year and that's mainly because of the change in the way that the Federal Government has managed this issue over the past year. Here's the Minister for the Environment, Tanya Plibersek, outlining this change.
0: Well, the actions of our government have changed. UNESCO, which is the UN body that's responsible for looking after these World Heritage properties, said very clearly before the election that they thought uh, the reef should be listed as in danger. Uh, since then, we've worked very closely with um, UNESCO and most particularly with the Queensland Government. We've invested $1.2 billion of additional funding to protect the reef uh, and. We're acting on water quality. We're acting on uh, fisheries management. We're working with traditional owners to deal with uh, problems like crown of thorns, starfish and marine plastics. But the biggest change, of course, is there's now government in Australia that is acting on climate change. And that's the biggest difference that uh, UNESCO has identified as well. They've said in the past that between the previous government and this government, it's a bit like night and day because we have a legislated pathway to net zero, because we're investing in uh, renewable energy, we've got our 82% renewable energy target, we're acting on methane, on ozone, on electric vehicles, on helping to electrify homes and businesses, all of this uh, has meant that uh, UNESCO is convinced that we're doing whatever we can to protect the reef from the impacts of climate right, change. Right. Now, it's, this yeah. isn't to say, yeah, this isn't to say we're out of the woods. Like every coral reef in the world is in danger from climate change. We need to be part of a global solution to act on climate change. So, so
1: the world has just had its hottest July on record. Sydney has had its hottest July ever as well, and. In some areas in the eastern states, the average temperatures have gone up between 2 degrees and 8 degrees. And I think we can safely say that the Great Barrier Reef is not out of danger. And it's these warmer temperatures and warmer waters that are contributing to coral bleaching, not just in the Great Barrier Reef, but coral reefs all around the world and sure having a government providing more funding to mitigating some of these issues is better than not providing this funding at all and taking climate change issues more seriously than the previous coalition government is good legislating net zero greenhouse emissions and reducing that by 43 percent is better than not legislating it and it's definitely better than the 26 percent reduction target promised by the coalition government but all of this is still not enough the Labor government is still approving coal mines. It approved the Isaac River Mine Project in May this year. It approved another thermal coal mine in Queensland last month. Gas exploration licences are still being granted. And there's an expectation that when the time comes, these gas projects will be approved as well. And there might have been a change of government last year and the messaging from the Labor government is different to the coalition government who were hostile to absolutely anything to do with the environment. But more action needs to be taken.
2: It's time to stop tiptoeing around the issues. There's been some debate as to whether July was the hottest on record. Even if it wasn't the hottest, it was hot enough. A few weeks back, Persian Gulf International Airport in Iran reported a heat index of 66.7 degrees Celsius. As many people said, this is intolerable condition for human or animal life. And if that didn't send a warning, then people aren't listening to warnings. We've got unprecedented fires in Greece and Italy and we've got lots of red and orange on the temperature map where normally there'd be some red, some orange, a lot of blue, maybe a bit of white for cold. It's not going to be a good summer in Australia. Some are predicting the hottest summers ever again and of course another bushfire season like the one we had three or four years back is not going to help things at all. Labour's got to really start being tough and Finding very quickly alternate forms of employment that are meaningful to its members in various industries that need to be closed down much sooner rather than a bit later.
1: And UNESCO did previously blast the coalition government over their approach to managing climate change issues and especially over their management of the Great Barrier Reef. And that last minute decision in 2018 to fund the Great Barrier Reef Foundation for $443 million, even though they didn't actually ask for that money. That was part of the reason why it wasn't listed on the in-danger list at that time. And there was also a lot of lobbying that went on behind the scenes. But the issue is the Great Barrier Reef is in danger right now, whether UNESCO says that it is or it isn't, and that's more of a political side issue anyway. But almost every environmental scientist agrees that the Great Barrier Reef is in danger or that it might even be a little bit too late to save it and There have been some criticisms that there's not that much difference between the Labor government and the previous coalition government on environmental issues. I think that there actually are. The Labor government is definitely less hostile to environmental issues, but the difference has to be measured in outcomes. And it could be argued, well, you're not going to get much happening on climate change within the 16 months since Labor got into office. It's more of a long-term process that has to be instigated. And anything implemented today might have a climate effect in 20 or 30 years' time, but Whatever is being implemented today, well, well, it's just not good enough. And it's the rising temperatures that are causing the big problem, not just in Australia but all around the world. Most of the heat generated by industrial activity in Australia, the heat coming from the cities and generated by gas emissions, most of that heat goes back into the oceans. And that's the issue that really needs to change.
2: Yeah. If I knew what to do, I'd do something about it. But I know that there are people out there who do know what to do and we should start listening to them rather than to donors and vested interests who hope that the status quo can be maintained.
1: Oh, you referred to this before, David, that the Labor government does have to balance those issues of environmental needs and workers in blue collar industries. Now, just at this time, it's not clear what the transitional pathway is and sure this is going to be a slow process but a slow process just isn't going to achieve the change that is required and it's just it's not just the federal governments the new south wales western australia and queensland governments they're all proceeding with a range of coal and gas projects and and these are mainly projects that were approved by the coalition government in office but it just seems that there's little coordination between the state and federal governments to achieve emissions reductions all all these different governments around australia are doing their own little things so australia i think just like the rest of the world it just keeps ignoring all of these issues and the evidence and we keep getting all of these wake-up calls such as having the hottest july on record now there might be dispute over that but That's what the scientists are saying. We keep hearing the news about this. We keep hearing the rhetoric about it as well. And as the Club of Rome suggested all the way back in 1992 and even as far back as 1971, it might already be too late. And the only thing that governments are doing at the moment is paying a little bit of lip service to climate change issues because maybe they've realised that it might be a little bit too late as well.
2: Yeah. It's easier for the Greens and it's easier for the Liberal Party for... Exactly opposite reasons. The Greens don't have to balance their members in non environmental jobs because of their policy. The National and the Liberal parties don't have to balance it because their ideology doesn't suit it. Labour has to try and work both sides of the street when one side of the street is on fire and the other side of the street is flooding. So, you know, <laughs> but they've got to work it out quickly.
1: And there was also a three-day Senate inquiry into sexual consent laws in Australia with the purpose of seeing if they're adequate enough to reduce sexual violence against women with a view to making sexual consent laws consistent across Australia. And it shouldn't be a case if sexual violence occurs in different states or territories across Australia that different laws will mean that a perpetrator might be found not guilty from a charge just because it happens in a different jurisdiction. But For me, a three-day inquiry just seems like it should be a more extensive inquiry, and this is only skimming the surface.
2: It's not a comfortable topic. Uniform laws are essential. A potential victim of sexual assault needs to know that they are protected as well as in Carratha, say, as they are in St Kilda nothing against the good folks of Caratha. Hello to our listeners. I've just picked somewhere remote and separate from the major urban centers in different states. I think that there is this belief that there's a class bias that lower socioeconomic people perpetrate and suffer more than this. But studies have shown that it's pretty much evenly spread across all socioeconomic levels and backgrounds across most age groups. And across most industries. So it's, it's something that can't be ignored. We've seen the damage in several high-profile cases that I'm not going to go into because they're still in front of the courts or they're about to be in front of the courts and I don't want to be brought up as evidence that someone's not getting a fair trial. That It's very difficult for the victim to be able to fairly present evidence all the time not only are there legal hurdles there's also emotional and psychological and societal hurdles meaning that a lot of this stuff doesn't go reported and a lot of support is needed and a lot of compassion should be entered into the system
1: and the senators that were listening into that three-day inquiry, they said that they were quite horrified and appalled by what they heard at the inquiry from the different witnesses that were there. And it is a cross-party committee of Labor, Liberal and Australian Green senators, and they probably need to get out more often and see what's happening in the real world because sexual violence in the community is quite prevalent. But at least they're now saying that there needs to be fundamental changes to consent laws and the legal systems in order to reduce incidence of sexual violence against women and the inquiry also heard about sexual violence on university campuses as well and again the senators also indicated some surprise over this and we had all of those reports of sexual abuse and violence at the university of sydney colleges back in 2017 only for the new south wales government to find out that there were laws enacted in the 1800s that meant that it had no power to do anything about it, and they also didn't do anything to change those laws at the time. So there's legal reform that needs to take place as well, and there's also other issues that also need to be taken into account. There's technology issues as well. We had that issue of the leaking of text messages from Brittany Higgins' mobile phone that were then published in the media, and I thought that there might have been telecommunications communications carriage laws that might have been violated here but those laws relating to media and publishing also need to be addressed there is a current 10-year national plan to end violence against women and children but this is a whole of government approach it's a whole of community approach that needs to be taken in and the senate will report back to parliament in september and hopefully we'll get some serious action on this issue because it's really really long overdue
2: i think having more women in Parliament will hopefully help this and hopefully there's a little bit more compassion and empathy and insight into the implications of these crimes. I also think that we do have members of Parliament from several parties and possibly all parties who are willing to take this seriously and try and help the victims in a way that is just and fair and that assures that everybody gets a fair trial, and I'm not saying it's easy. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, if the laws date back to the 1800s, where the social morals and ethics of the time were completely different, the law has to change.
0: This is New Politics, one of the top ten Australian politics and news commentary audio programmes. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music... And you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon.
1: There were just a few other issues in federal politics, not that spectacular. Inflation is coming down and there was no interest rate rise during the month. Job seeker payments are increasing in September by $28 per week. The Liberal Party said that it was going to oppose this increase before it realised that it was going to get a lot of blowback in the community and political fallout if it did block that rise. But the bigger issue was the return of the Housing Australia Future Fund Bill to the House of Representatives for a second hearing and sending it off to the Senate. And if it gets blocked again by the Senate, this will mean that the Albanese government will have a trigger to call a double dissolution election and an early election if it chooses to do so. But the chances of this are very, very slim, despite all the flurry of activity in the media suggesting that all of this is now going to happen. An early election hasn't happened for a long, long time. The 1998 election was about six months early. The 1984 election was around 18 months early. And in both of those elections, the government of the day lost a lot of seats and almost lost office. And the last double dissolution election in 2016 almost cost Malcolm Turnbull government and ended up getting a far more hostile and a far more right-wing Senate as well. Governments always try to get an election trigger as insurance so they can hold a double dissolution election if necessary and put pressure on the senators to pass key legislation,
2: but it's rarely activated, and when it is, it's not really a successful political strategy. It's a last-minute desperate bomb where you just blow everything up and hope that the rubble falls away from you and over to your opponents, but Pyrrhic victories where you go from a fairly comfortable majority to a slim majority, like the Hook government did in 1984, or where you go from a manageable Senate to an unmanageable Senate like Turnbull did. I don't know that Labour has enough political support to make the double dissolution something that you'd even take as a risk. I don't think they'd want to do it before the voice referendum had been done. Because... It wouldn't take much to derail that. They lose six or seven seats and they're in minority government with a party who's not keen or a group of independents who aren't keen. And then the Senate swings to from being you're in minority, but it's a fairly friendly majority who are stopping you to a hostile majority. Things become a lot more difficult. So it could happen, but I can't see that Labor would want to to go. But You're right, having the trigger there, because things can change very quickly for the better and for the worse, and having the trigger there might be enough to settle some old scores. If a more dynamic, more charismatic, more honest liberal leader was to appear, you might want to trigger the double dissolution before they can put that person in instead of Peter Dutton, for example. But again, the the Senate creates all kinds of issues, so it'd still be a big risk. Of course, no one ever thinks of governing better.
1: Well, I just find that it's a very odd situation where especially earlier on in the week the media was agitating for an early election and highly speculating on it and and they kept on suggesting yes this is a strong possibility now but then when there is an election they say how boring it is and can't wait for it to be all over and David you and I we're not like that we would like to see an election every weekend if possible but we just can't see an early election happening any time soon the Housing Australia Future Fund now That is definitely a piece of legislation that the Albanese government wants to see pass through Parliament. And maybe he's just hanging on to this. So it does end up getting the double dissolution election trigger, even if he never uses it. But if it was such a big issue for the Labor government, well, they just create new legislation to set up an annual $10 billion building fund incentive of a future fund and of course it's a big issue for the community and the people who depend on much needed social housing and we've said this before this housing australia future fund is inadequate but why would a government die in a ditch over it unless they're working towards getting a double dissolution election trigger that they're never going to use so To me, it also seems that they're playing politics on this very important issue and the Labor government should be using something else to play politics with or get their double dissolution trigger if that's what they're after. But for me, it doesn't really matter when Anthony Albanese decides to call the next federal election. He's likely to win that election. And of course, you can never fully rule things in or out. But historically, and just the way that politics is balanced at the moment federally, Labor should win the next federal election so why would he go to an early election one year early and risk one year of a three-year term when all he's doing is gaining an extra two years instead of three so this doesn't make any sense at all and also in the media there was speculation that Anthony Albanese would call an election before the 1st of July 2024 so that it ends up being a referendum on stage three tax cuts and this doesn't make any sense either. I don't think we've ever seen a government campaigning on giving up tax cuts. And who is seriously going to vote against tax cuts, even if they're unlikely to ever receive them? And this would be campaign gold for the coalition. So it might be the media just playing games at the moment or not having their thinking cap on. But I don't think that any of these scenarios are very likely at all.
2: they're four, five seats ahead at the moment? it's not uncomfortable. I'm sure he'd like another six or seven seats, but it's unlikely that he'd gain that. He might lose three to four to five of them and end up in minority, which no government really wants. I know that the Gillard government was a very productive government in minority, but it depends on who it is you're sharing the minority government with. If you get People who hate the other side more than they hate you, that can often be negotiated around and suddenly you've lost government and you're back to another double dissolution election or you've lost the confidence and there's a new prime minister and a new government. So I'd be surprised. Of course, we live in times where surprising and unprecedented things happen. So anything might happen, but I think I'm pretty sure we're not going to see a double dissolution election in the next 18 months or so.
1: That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see
2: you next time.